Hello and welcome to the Max Moo Theater and Performance Podcast. This is Lindsay Behrens. On today's episode, we talk about the latest Beyond Broadway in New York City. Enjoy the show. All right. I am on all kinds of muscle relaxers because I'm having neck spasms. <laughs> Sounds like so a party. excuse any gibberish that comes out of my <laughs> mouth today. <laughs> We'll just prop Lindsay up and move her mouth. It is weekend at Lindsay's over here. (laughs) (laughs) All right, let's start like we always do with introductions. Liz, who are you? Well, I'm Liz, and I blog at Fuck Yeah Great Plays. And also, starting this week, you'll be able to see my column on Stage and Candor. I'm doing the theatrical advice column. Fantastic. I can't wait to read about that. And we have a first-time contributor, Jose. Who are you? Hi, uh, I'm Jose um, Solis, and I write uh, about theater at stagebuddy.com. Fantastic. And I'm Lindsay. I pressed the record button. Today, we are going to talk about some theater that we have seen recently, starting with Blood at the Root at National Block Theater. We've all seen this, correct? Yep. Yep. Excellent. It is by playwright Dominique Morisot director Steve Brodnax, who is the head of the NFA acting program at Penn State. This is a Penn State commission. Apparently, Penn State does a specific commission for each acting class. Um, Several playwrights have done that. This is Dominique's commission for a class of students um, at that school. And the production that is here in New York City at the National Black Theater is the same production that they did at Penn State. So it is based on a true story. Um, it is based on the Genesis. Um, and for those that don't know, that is an incident that happened in Louisiana. Here it's called Cedar, Louisiana, which I assume is a fake name for the location. Do you think that's incorrect? You made a face. No, I just it just never crossed my mind whether it yeah, was I fake. Think, I didn't think about it. The location have been changed to oh, wow. fictionalize it to some degree. But what happened, uh, based on my understanding of the circumstances and what I witnessed in the play, is that there is a high school where there is a fairly sharp divide between the black and the white students. There is a tree on the property of the school where the white students hung out. And one day, a black student went and sat there, and it was somewhat controversial. And the next day, they arrived at the school, and there were three nooses hanging from the tree. And... It was very controversial in the school. Some believed that it was just a prank, and some believed that it was a racially motivated hate crime. Following on the heels of this controversy, there was a fight and between some black students and some white students. Six black students were arrested. They were charged as adults with attempted murder. And there was quite a bit of controversy surrounding that because many believed that they were being unfairly charged charged in a way that far exceeded the way that white students had been treated for similar behavior um i thought this was an exceptionally emotional and well done play i was very very taken by it it is mostly naturalistic with scenes interspersed with some poetry dancing and hip-hop in particular a scene of dramatizing um, a protest I thought was very well done and very moving. You know, I just thought this was a really brilliant examination of a difficult situation that managed to have sympathy for all of the characters in it. 
including some white characters who were unable to see the racial animus behind some of the incidents they were witnessing. And even though I think from my perspective, those individuals were incorrectly interpreting the events of the play, the play was not judgmental towards them. It was sympathetic. And I just think that is such a hard thing to dramatize, which is some people witness things and while they're not motivated by hate, they misunderstand. And I think we see this a lot in our culture. And I thought this was just really brilliant at dramatizing these events and providing this very sympathetic view of everyone involved. What did you guys think? Well, it's funny that you say that you talk about the realism in this play because I came away thinking of it like a Greek tragedy mm-hmm. because it's the, the way that it's structured with the chorus moments that interspersed throughout the show, the music, the dance, uh, the way they tell a story. It's a lot of uh, presentational storytelling mm-hmm. I thought, with monologues uh, as well as a, a lot of the major actions the noose bit, um, the fight all happen off stage. We're told about them later, or maybe there's a little reenactment, um, which at first I was going, wait, why aren't we seeing these on stage? And then once I, that click, that sort of structural uh, framing device, I was absolutely with it. But it did take me a little bit to to get into the story um, because of that, I guess, because I just wasn't, ex- I wasn't expecting that presentational style of storytelling. But the story is is fascinating, and I think that... This is actually the first uh, Dominique Morceau play I've seen on stage. Mm. Um, I've read a few, but I hadn't actually seen one, so it was just great. I mean, her the, the dialogue is just so good and so beautiful, and um, I'm, I'm glad this was my introduction to it. Right. Uh, I, 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 it's so interesting that you saw it as uh, naturalistic, because... But I found so captivating is actually the artifice in it. Like, uh, I mean, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I wore my contacts uh, wrong that day. But uh, the the actors look. They reminded me of like something like Dawson's Creek or like movies where you know, like you know, it's older actors playing teenagers, and that brought like a, a layer of like, oh, like you know, like. I felt like I was being like slapped. Like sometimes how adults behave, like like teenagers in like the real world. Uh, and and I thought it was so um, I don't know uh, it was peculiar. I thought that it was very uh, like very very like uh, on purpose. Uh, and um, I also found so interesting how I saw it the day uh, Prince died, which rest in peace, Prince. <laughs> and uh, it was a show about the power of words mm-hmm. and symbols. Yeah. And I was like, maybe I had too much Prince and like symbols in my <laughs> mind. But even by the, there was like a Q&A after the show ended and someone in the audience mentioned something that had never crossed my mind while I was watching the play. And you mentioned the white characters and this uh, woman thought that the white characters at first were playing uh, African-American characters, Mm. which I thought was so fascinating. And she was like, it was only until you you know, she was talking to one of the actors only until you refer to them as white that I realized that they were playing white um, characters. And I was like, wow, that's mind blowing. Yeah. they. I mean, they do some really interesting. I mean, obviously, the interesting commentary on race sounds stupid. Sorry. Pretend I didn't say that. But the way that they also address um, white people acting black and identifying with black culture, as well as black people who 
are quote unquote too white. You know, the, the one guy who goes through talking about, yeah, I've been called an Oreo and uh, I don't remember all the other things, but you know, he, he lists all those names about and So it's not just race, but it's like where you fall within racial categories, I think was very interesting. Um, I, I loved when she says that uh, Asha, who's our white girl who acts black for lack of a better uh, descriptor, she said she, uh, Ray Lynn, our lead, says that Asha only wants the fun parts of being black, you know? And, and I just, I, I think that the play did a really great job of passing judgment on those people without really passing judgment. You know, sort of as the audience, hey, this is not a, like sitting back is not the way to be an activist, but without punishing them in any way, just sort of presenting it in a way that makes you aware that that's not right. Right. Through her eyes, this white person witnessing this event, she failed to recognize the racial motivation behind it. Yeah. But like you said, and what the word I was using was sympathy. She misunderstands and she learns through the play that her interpretation of it isn't correct, but the play doesn't judge her. It understands that she comes to the incident with a certain experience, yeah. a certain lived world. And she depended, she wanted to, she, in the talk back we attended, she talks about how, her character wanted to depend on the power structure in place to yield justice. Right. And she didn't understand that that power structure was infused with racism and it wasn't going to met out the appropriate punishment or uh, it wasn't going to hold those accountable for those that hung the nooses. It wasn't going to hold them accountable. Likewise, it was going to treat far too harshly the black male students who got in the fight. Yeah, I mean, she has this... I don't know if I... I read another article after we went and saw this, and they said, you know, you believe that the system will work itself out because the system has always worked itself out for you. Mm -hmm. And that's mm -hmm. sort of how she runs through this show, and I think that was a really interesting uh, dynamic to see on stage. I wanted to uh, say, like, special, like, um, you know, like hats off to the uh, costume designer because... Uh, in a show that's so much about words and you know like we hear how like one like two of the characters say like you said the n word and you said the f word and you know like our imaginations can go places like i mean we're all grown up so we're not naive and we know what they were talking about but i'm uh talking about the costume designer because i had never noticed uh the uh ray lynn was wearing a hoodie and when it was closed when it was zipped up it said fearless and when it was unzipped it had fear on one on one side and less on the other side and i'm like wow like i had yeah i mean it sounds dumb but i had never realized no, that's how like awesome. i didn't think about if that. you split those you know like that word like that like beyonce word it's like two like very negative like bad things costumers carly reader so bra you. bravo carly well this production just barely opened and i know it's running at national black theater for a couple more weeks so there's still opportunities to see it and I really loved it. I would highly recommend it. Yeah, I'd also, I'd never been up to the National Black Theater, and it's beautiful. That space is just great. Yeah. Okay, next up, what are we talking about next? Let me go to the suitcase. You are now the owner of the suitcase, Liz. All right. So Theater 167 is a company that I've had on my periphery for a while. 
they're very interested in do- uh, documenting the culture of Manhattan, or sorry, not Manhattan, um, Jackson Heights, and the fact that famously there's 167 languages spoken there, um, and about bringing all those different cultures on stage. So I've I've had them on my my to see list for a while, and so we went and saw you are now the owner of the suitcase, which has short pieces by. Mando Alvarado, Jenny Lynn Bader, Barbara Cassidy, Les Hunter, Joy Tomasco, Gary Winter, and Stephanie Zadravic. And each of these playwrights wrote pieces around a suitcase. That's sort of what ties all these together. Um, there's a man and a woman at the top of the show who are on an airplane. It is her first time, Lorita. It is her first time on an airplane, and she's coming to New York from ecuador to see her to go live with her grandmother and in a sort of fairy tale sort of way she gets her suitcase mixed up with another man she takes his suitcase and he takes hers so this starts this chain of events that leads them all over new york uh she's trying to get to her grandmother's house with a suit a magical suitcase He's trying to find Lorita and get her her suitcase back. Um, there's a cell phone that turns into a child. There's a sleeping beauty. It, it takes place in Enchanted Jackson Heights, and it's a very New York-centered fairy tale is the best. I don't want to call it... It's not an urban fairy tale, and it's not a fairy tale retelling, but it's the sort of fairy tales that could only come out of modern New York City. So, yes, yeah, so there's a lot of playwrights, and the, the pieces are all sort of loosely tied together. Some are more successful than others. I found it overall a little hard to follow and a little strangely paced because you can tell that they split up all the plays into different pieces and sort of interspersed them, and sometimes they run together really nicely, and sometimes there's a scene with very little plot development and then a scene that had a ton of plot development really fast. And so it left the piece as a whole, to me, feeling very uneven. I don't know what you guys felt about. What do you think, Jose? Uh, it was confusing. Uh, sometimes I, was, I didn't really know what was going on. And I kept being distracted because there seemed to be like activity by the other characters and even like elements on the set that I probably shouldn't have been paying attention to, but my attention would just go go to something else rather than what was going on like in the main um, scene. So, uh, I mean, it it had its moments and uh, I think it captured really well how insane like Jackson Heights is. It also made me very hungry. (laughs) (laughs) There's a lot of food. And, you know, my favorite part of it that was unfortunately all relegated to one scene and could have been spread out. It could have been its own show was what I told someone later was the, um, Jackson Heights into the woods where to keep a cell phone turns into a baby, um, for many details I can't really get into and to keep the self, the baby from turning back into the cell phone, they have to get seven, one element from every continent into this one cell phone store in the middle of Jackson Heights. And it leads to this, you know, ordering in a pizza and then bringing in some sari fabric. And and to me, that was so fun and could have been its own show. And instead, it was like 
a two minute bit in a longer piece. And so it just, I don't know. The whole thing just felt very uneven to me. Yeah, I think that's just a consequence in part of the endeavor, which is having all of these different playwrights break a play into little pieces and each write them separately. Even in the playbill, it identifies who wrote what section. And I think it's possible. I, I really appreciate that endeavor. And I appreciate the big endeavor of Theater 167. Yeah, of me too. Reflection of a community and very tied to a place. And that place being so special and unique in the world, which is just this melding pot of different cultures and languages and people. And so seeing a play that reflects that is very exciting. But when you chop up the play with all these different playwrights, I think... For me, I, I could kind of follow along the plot. That's fine, because I think it's easy to instruct a group of people, this happens, you write that. Then this happens, you write that. Then this happens, you write that. But the, the thing that really suffered for me was the character development. I did not really understand who any of these people were, why they were doing what they were doing, and why I should care about what they were doing. Like there was a Prince Charming who's searching for his one true love, but telling me someone is a prince and searching for his one true love does not make me care about him, nor do I care whether he finds that person or not. I don't have any sense of whether he's deserving or entitled to such a true love, that kind of thing, you know? Yeah. So I thought it kind of relied on some tropes as shortcuts for character development. And in that sense, I had a hard time really caring about whether the person in their quest really found their thing they were searching for. I, I mean, I was there's the suitcase mix up. And so you get a sense of these two people and the uh, actors playing those rules were quite charming and engaging. So I probably enjoyed that storyline the best. They're like three or four different storylines intermingled, but almost none of the other ones could I really get a hold on and really feel deeply about whether I was happy or sad that they met their conclusion. Yeah. I, I did appreciate some of the, like I said, the very New York type fairy tales. Like I love that the tower of Babel is your crappy off brand cell phone store. Mm -hmm. Of course it is. Or my favorite. And it was a, a random plot point that didn't actually really go anywhere but the magic of this kid who it's sort of like a jack and the beanstalk thing but he finds a house that always has a bag of cans that he can take to the recycling and get money and it's cans from all over the world and they're always there and he always has enough cans to go get money for his family like, i was like that that is a new york dream fairy tale right there <laughs> like, <laughs> but again it was just kind of dropped in there as a little moment and then i couldn't cling to it because then it was gone the other thing i thought and this is just i'm sure there are a million reasons why a show gets performed in a particular location but we were at a theater on the upper west side and i just kept thinking this story and this theater company are so tied to a particular neighborhood why aren't we in that neighborhood yeah i actually i wondered that too but I also, I don't know any theaters up there. Yeah, and who's to say whether we would have traveled there? So I <laughs> yeah. completely concede that putting it in Manhattan is, you know, probably the easiest place to gather an audience. But um, I'm not sure, actually, that Jackson Heights is that much more difficult to get to than the Upper West Side. That's true. Yep, so. that's very true. And, like, for, for, for a show that's, like, you know, like the, a cell phone company uh, store, I mean, it's, like, one of the most important locations like everyone's so clumsy and bad with technology because I, I kept thinking like how the Laurita who just moved in uh, from from Ecuador I think right mm -hmm. how 
doesn't she have a cell phone? Like, I mean, like, even in Latin America, we have cell phones and everyone <laughs> has iPhones. So I was like, I don't know, that kind of bothered me, even though it was um, a fairy tale or like more like a fantastic or like comedy kind of thing. I was like, no, 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 like it's New York and it's the 21st century. We all have cell phones. Yeah, I can't imagine. I mean, I did actually once travel to a foreign country without a cell phone, but that was a decade ago. I can't imagine <laughs> doing that now, right? Yeah. That'd be crazy. Okay, the next thing we saw is the Aaron Landsman monologues. Jose, you want to introduce those? Um, sure. Okay, so uh, I think it's appropriate that we just talked about a very New York show because in a way, uh, I thought that these two monologues that Aaron Landsman wrote are about commuting, which is something that all of us in New York end up talking about at one point or another. Um, in the first one uh, called uh, Empathy School, we have uh, a bus driver uh, played by uh, Jim Finley, who uh, basically, you know, we are playing, the audience is the, we are the passengers on the bus. And he just tells us, welcome to the bus, blah, 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 whatever, fasten your seatbelts. And then as it's a, it's a long uh, drive in the middle of the night. So as the night progresses, he tells us a very, very intimate story about himself and about people he knows. And it was so fascinating because it starts off as something, you know, like you're sitting in a bus and it's the last place you want to be. And like, if we could teletransport, we could. But then for some reason, the guy's like so talented. He's so charming. And he captures your attention right away. And you don't you never really know where the story's going. And even though you know what the uh, destination, the final destination is, you never know where the story he's telling is leading. So it's powerful. <laughs> and in the second one called uh, Love Story, uh, the performer is Frank, Frank Hartz. And this one's basically about being on the subway and being on the train and traveling all over the city. And this one's a bit more fragmented. Uh, there's like no straight storyline that I could follow. It's just more a bunch of anecdotes as if like someone's showing you around the city uh, on the subway and telling you about the wonders that are outside the train. So that was a bit more uh, difficult to get into, I think. And oh, well, the, the interesting thing about this is how they are performed uh, and the use of the space down at uh, Abrams Art Center is crazy like i usually am the kind of person who when they tell me you just have to wait in the lobby and we'll take you somewhere i get like i panic i'm like oh god <laughs> they're gonna make me like do stuff and be part of the show just stick with maximum for a while that will all change <laughs> <laughs> and that well that's not the case so yep. yeah so the first one um empathy school the audience is seated on the stage facing the house with a large projection screen in front of them. And on the projection screen throughout the performance, it's most of the time it's as though you're staring out the window of the bus that you're riding on. Um, and then interspersed with that are animations. Um, I was reading in the playbill that this was first performed at Fusebox, the festival I talked about on the very last episode back in 2007, actually on a bus which I thought was very interesting. Oh. Wow. Yeah. Um, and then the other element of the first monologue was a three-piece band. And I thought they were fantastic. Mm -hmm. I really, really loved the musical accompaniment to the monologue. I thought that was very fantastic. Yeah. How about you, Liz? Um, you know, it's funny that you said that you 
got more into empathy school than love story because I had the opposite reaction. Um, I, I did think that Jim Finlay is a, was a very compelling and charming performer, but I really didn't like sitting on the stage. And I'm usually all about that, you know, changing uh, where the audience sits, but I couldn't understand why, what the point was of sitting on stage watching a projection and what that brought to the show besides it's a different type of seating. Um, it, it just didn't affect me in any sort of way. I didn't feel like it really brought anything to the show. But I thought he was a great performer. I thought the music was great. I loved the the video, which is just looking out a window residential on a bus, at a residential area on the bus at night from all different angles, just kind of turning aimlessly and driving on the highway. Um and the way the way the story unfolded, not to give too much away, I thought was was great. And as I mentioned on Twitter, um, this was when the guy, the man two seats down from me, asked someone for a piece of gum, and the guy gave it to him. And then he was like, "Oh, do you want a hit of my vape? I got some weed." <laughs> like pre-show, just sitting in the in the seats together and indoors just indoors <laughs> and the guy's like mm, no thanks thanks though so he's like oh, okay you know it's just it's like white wine i was like it is not like white wine <laughs> i mean maybe it maybe what you have is like white wine but i don't know if i'd really compare the two and i can only imagine imagine the show would be enhanced by that experience right no i'm sure but and, I, he, and I will say that this this smoking same indoors is a no 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 but vaping <laughs> it's vaping lindsay <laughs> Um, okay. But I will say that this band seemed to really get into the experience after uh, the show. I have no doubt. He was, he was uh, glued to a seat at the end. Uh, he was very overwhelmed. But yeah, so I had a hard time getting into empathy school. But uh, Love Story, I think because you know it's about stalking, really. This man follows these strangers that he meets on a train and sort of spies on them through a window, through a crack, on another train car. Um, so to let him work with that full stage and present this monologue all the way from the back wall of the theater with little clips coming in just through, you would see like a crack and you would see a video through it of what he was talking about. Like that huge sense of space was really dynamic and to me really added something to the love story performance. That's interesting. I lost the thread in love story. I, I, I was, I, I got it early on. I understood that this person, um, appeared to have some form of autism, um, is, or some, I didn't understand that when I was watching it. I, I understood that this person s suffered from some sort of, uh, mental disability. Um, but then because I lost the thread, I went and I read all about the story and that is what it is. The person has autism. Oh. And so he, um, through, this is explained in the story. He, I think because his mother passes away and he gets some form of social security support, he makes enough money so that he is not homeless. He has a place to live and he can afford to feed himself and, and that. So he's, he's not, um, he's not homeless, but he doesn't have a job and he just spends his days wandering the city on the subway, but also walking. He talks at one point about how he has to get a new pair of shoes every three weeks because he runs through his shoes so quickly because he's just walking, walking, walking. And, um, 
as you mentioned, Liz, he becomes obsessed with this couple that he sees get engaged in a restaurant where he is dining. And I followed the story right up to that point, And then I just got really lost. And I, and I think that there were all these little snippets of a story that I think were all the same story, but I think I was interpreting oh. them as different couples. Um, so I got really, really lost. Um, but I enjoyed the projections a lot. I thought they were so beautiful. And I just wanted to mention the artist who created those is Janet Wong. I thought they were really beautiful to look at. So um, I had an easier time following the first story. And I think I was probably a little more engaged in empathy school. Um, I There was a moment where I felt a little bit like uh, some whining. There was some whining by the narrator um, where the story got really narrow and focused on this individual being sort of mad at the establishment and down on his luck. Um, but then it pulled back and the focus blew out and it broadened the, and the message of the story became far more universal about the sort of ubiquitous obstacle that we all face. And I, it sucked me back in and I was with it again to the end. So those are my thoughts on the show. <laughs> yeah. That's so funny. I had, like I had no problem following love story. I was like mm. with it, but but the empathy school took a little was a little harder for me to to follow. So I don't know. Maybe our brains are all wired differently. <laughs> as they are, as <laughs> as they are. I was like wondering because uh, you you said that you preferred seeing uh, love story far from mm -hmm. like the and and I was wondering if they had done that because you know like when you're in a bus you feel like you're more trapped and more closer to people in a way, and. Which makes no sense because I mean buses and subways, I guess, are kind of same thing. Um, but like when you're on the subway, like even if you're like standing like practically on top of someone or sitting next to someone, like you couldn't be like further apart from each other. Like you don't know what's going on with them. So I that whole thing actually, I I mean, if they were trying to make me feel like I was on a subway and I wanted to be somewhere else in a second story, I think that kind of worked yeah, because of the distance. That was actually when I was trying to figure out like why that show was on a stage. I wrote down that. Empathy school is too close for comfort mm. and love story is too far away. You hmm. know, that the love story is all about the distance and that empathy school is all about the closeness. And yet both I think are about isolation. Yeah. One regard, regardless of proximity to another human being. Yeah, that's true. Okay. Anything else to add on that one? All right. So. Head of Passes. This is at the Public Theater. It has been playing for a little while, but it has extended multiple times, and it is still playing when you hear this. I thought we might have run out of time to cover it, um, but thankfully it got extended one last time so we can talk about it. Does it still have tickets? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Cool. I haven't seen it. I just want to go see it. It is by Terrell Alvin McCraney, directed by Tina Landau, and is getting lots and lots of attention for the performance by Felicia Rashad. Um, this is a family drama set in Southern Louisiana. The mother is aging and her two grown sons really want her to move out of this old house that she is clinging to. Um, I don't know if anybody saw the way West, but it's so many parallels with that play. I just thought these two plays were so interesting to have been produced in the same season at two different theaters. I was hoping somebody would write a think piece about them. If you write it, I promise to read it. <laughs> um, 
So anyway, and oh, just to note, the head of passes is where the Mississippi River hits the Gulf of Mexico, I they mentioned in the show. Um, so the family has gathered for the mother's birthday. And in the beginning, it is a very typical living room drama. A lot of um, almost cliches get played out with the there's some a couple uh an older gentleman who works in the home his son is also there and they have a lot of conflict and banter um the two sons come home uh and then uh the local doctor also comes in um and there's a huge storm and the house starts to leak now this play uh is based loosely on the book of job from the bible and so knowing that, you know, and it is not a spoiler to say that things start to go very, very wrong. Um, and bad things do happen in spectacular fashion, both personally and structurally in the play. And then you get to, uh, after the intermission, uh, the thing that everyone is just buzzing about and losing their minds about in this play, which is this soliloquy by Felicia Rashad, where she wails and rails against the world and to god about everything that has gone wrong i um had a ticket to see the very first performance of this play and it got canceled for technical reasons and then i was like well i guess i had a ticket i don't have a ticket i guess i won't see it but i just heard so much about this performance that i was like you know what i have got to bite the bullet pay for a ticket full price i remember full price not full full price and I am so glad I went. I think this is a performance not to be missed. It is exceptional. I think every off-Broadway acting award will be won by Felicia Rashad. It is really, really exceptional. All that being said, I was not emotionally affected by the performance. I actually felt a lot like... I was ticking off sort of destruction boxes, like, yep, that bad thing happened. Yep, I, and how's that third thing going to happen? Oh, check, there it goes. And um, it felt the same way I feel often watching Shakespeare or hearing a story from the Bible, which is that the tragedy is so grandiose and so operatic that it's I can witness the tragedy, but I don't actually feel touched by the tragedy. Now, I... Um, others in the audience did not feel this way. There was a lot of emoting in the audience. So I know there were people personally affected by it. I did not feel that way. Now, Jose, you saw this. What did you think? I felt, well, Felicia Rashad is a rock star. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that, there's that. But I felt like you, like, it didn't affect me emotionally, but I was so overwhelmed by how amazing this woman is on stage that I kept getting shivers all the time. But... What I liked about it is that, you know, I, I had the same thoughts. Like, the, the second the show was over, I was like, I want to see Felicia Rochette, like, in every Shakespeare, like, every Henry, every King, every... She needs to play everything. And what I like about it, excuse me, is that, uh, yeah, you know, like, in the Bible and even in Shakespeare, to some extent, women are the wives, you know, like, the Moses' wife in the Bible is waiting for him to come down with the Ten Commandments. Mm-hmm. And, like, all the Lady Macbeths and, you know, like, we all know how that goes. So the, <laughs> so the fact that that this playwright and, and, you know, is letting this woman, like, be those characters that have been male most of the time is fucking, like, kick-ass. It's amazing. Who wrote this? 
Carol Avin McCraney. And so this uh, premiered in um, Chicago, and then there was a uh, production of it in the San Francisco area. And then it came to the public, and that is when Felicia Rashad... um, became connected with the production and the playwright actually substantially rewrote the end for her specifically so apparently the play is quite different today than it was at the premiere and i only know all of this because i read the new york times article about it um but i thought that was really interesting because it does seem to be she is so suited to the role that it was it was notable that it had not only it had affected it had the 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 impact had gone both directions. She had impacted the play, and the play had impacted her. Wow, the, I, I I thought it was so interesting how you know you also mentioned how the the first act is like a, a living room like drama, and like you're like oh god, I've seen this a million times already. And by the when when there's like the twist and like things go south and are all sorts of crazy, isn't it interesting how? the play never like feels like disjointed it Mm -hmm. still feels like the same play even if it's like two completely different genres within the same piece but it feels like this like just single structure it's like i don't know it's amazing so can i ask someone who's not seen this but is very familiar with the book job you're saying that you you guys both are saying that you had a hard time connecting with the grandiose tragedy is it is there personal tragedy as well as? Oh, yes. Over, okay. It's not just, you know, plagues and famine and rain. There are no actual locusts or anything no like locusts. that. No locusts. Okay. <laughs> it's just a lot of stuff goes wrong. It's not a one-to-one comparison. You're mm-hmm. not, like, counting down the seven things. Um, but just, like, everything that could go wrong in her life goes wrong in her life. I see. Yeah. Okay. Anything else to add? Mm, I think I'm good. All right, what do we have coming up that we are excited to see? Well, I don't know about y'all. I'm finally going to go see Kentucky, which I've been looking forward to for so long. It's getting good buzz. I I am very excited for that one. I'm going to see the Half Trial Show at New York Live Arts. And based solely on the discussion that Liz and David have, I'm going to see Stupid Fucking Bird. Oh, good. You'll, I think you'll enjoy it. I'd heard all these good things about it, but it kept falling to the bottom of my priority list. But then I heard your guys' talking about it, and I was like, you know what? This needs to, this needs to be seen. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to see that. <laughs> and then I'm going to see Streetcar Named Desire at St. Anne's on Saturday. I'm very excited about that. Ooh. I'm also going to go see, this is you know, theater improv, but I'm going to go see Stolen House. Have you guys heard about No, what's that? I, I hadn't, and someone uh, wrote about it to me on my blog and tipped me off to it. It's a group out of Chicago, and this is their first New York foray. And it's a group of improvisers and a director, and they go onto the set of other shows running in New York right now and improvise a play based on the set of another show. So what set so are you seeing it on? They are. I'm not, I haven't decided yet. But for their first New York outing, they're going to do a weekend on the set of The Effect at Barrow Street. Mm -hmm. And then they're going to do Perfect Crime. (laughs) I know, right? (laughs) Can't wait. Um, Wow. But it's a bunch of it's a bunch of UCB folks from New York and Chicago. And I mean, great comedians. And I don't know. I just I find the idea very intriguing. It is intriguing. I wonder how it works like 
what kind of arrangement they have to have in place with the play. Like, you will not break our shit, obviously, yeah. but also <laughs> you will leave this stuff over here. Or you can't touch this, or I don't know. Yeah, no, I like, do they have access to the show's props? I, I don't know, but they improvise a full length <laughs> play on the set of another show. I want to see their wig game. <laughs> Okay. I'd love to see that in the head of Pazza set. Oh my I know. god! <laughs> like that's once I started thinking, I was like, God, like what other shows could they jump in on? Pre or post intermission? Oh, post. <laughs> <laughs> totally. All right. Do you have anything coming up, Jose? Uh, the thing that's making me most excited about, and I squeal every time I talk about it, it's uh, Dido and Ineas at City Center. Uh, they're doing two performances, I think, and it's Victoria Clark and Kelly O'Hara singing their everything off uh so i'm really excited about that it's like my favorite opera so yeah, i'm probably gonna be like crying all the time and uh i'm catching up with like broadway stuff all the all the thus the humans the father the crucible uh and i'll try to make some time oh and talk everlasting which for some reason i'm kind of dreading but I, who knows it might be fun <laughs> Yeah, time's running out to see those Broadway shows before the Tony deadline. God, yeah, I know. Or, not the I deadline, seen but the nominations. The nominations, I mean. which will make it all impossible to get into. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm very behind on my Broadway. Everything I want to see is already impossible to get into. So God, yeah. I really want to see The Color Purple. Same. We should go do that one day. <laughs> after I, I sell my kidney. To yeah, after <laughs> I sell your ticket. kidneys and we'll go see The Color Purple. All right, deal. <laughs> <laughs> All right, yay, you did it. First episode. How uh, was it? You survived. I survived, and I didn't have any wine or weed. or. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like yeah. white wine. Yeah. <laughs> Liz did it offer you a hit on her vape beforehand. Uh, yeah, uh, Is that how you say I'm, that? Yeah, it's a I'm, vape. <laughs> we were in a vape. I'm curious. Did, did you do you know why he thought it was white wine and not like red wine or like prosecco or I d- something? I like didn't that? even want to get into that conversation right. with this man. <laughs> so, so this I is the Chardonnay strain. Mm. <laughs> but I will say also with that show, they did give out wine at intermission. I did have a glass of white wine at intermission. Yeah, that was great. Maybe that's why you got into the love story better. Is that Maybe. what it's called? Love story. Yeah, love story. You're like a little buzz. <laughs> You're feeling mixed, it. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Thanks, guys. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode of the Max Moo Theater and Performance Podcast. If you enjoy this show, we would appreciate it if you would leave a rating and review at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to the podcast. If you have questions or comments, you can find us all on Twitter. Max Moo is at M-A-X-A-M-O-O. Jose is at Jose Solis Mayen. J-O-S-E-S-O-L-I-S-M-A-Y-E-N. Liz is at Miss Liz Richards, M-I-S-S-L-I-Z-R-I-C-H-A-R-D-S. And I'm at Lindsay Barons, L-I-N-D-S-A-Y-B-A-R-E-N-Z. We'll see you next week.